Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard and joining me today is Lucas Stuber. Lucas, can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. First of all, thanks so much for having me, Grant. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. This is a, a cool topic for a podcast, right? Bioinformatics is um, one of those niches within a niche. You know, it's really cool to, I think, have opportunities to learn more about and to share what we're working on. So I think like a lot of folks, I've had a, a bit of a a twisty turny journey to where where I've ended up professionally. Um, I was originally a computer science and business major at the University of Oregon years ago and um, had a lot of expectations from my family in terms of like, you know, you're going to be a businessman and this is this is what you're going to do. And I already uh, sort, sort of had snuck in the computer science element. And um, to my great chagrin, they forced me to take some some classes outside of my, my major strand one year, right? You know, this sort of cluster idea of like, okay, you need to go experience some other things. And then I was kind of like, oh, why am I doing this? And um, so I signed up for some courses in linguistics. And I, I, I literally think that it was because I could sleep in, uh, be, you know, the ones that I chose, right? You know, that was kind of, oh, good, my Tuesday, Thursday, I can get to campus at 10. And just really immediately fell in love. You know, I um, had always been really into computer science and math uh, from kind of a structural basis. Like I really like the sort of elegance of, of taking something really complex and, and watching it sort of sort itself out into um, a simple solution or making noise from the chaos, so to speak. Language, I found, has a lot of that same element. It really is math uh, in a fundamental sense. There's structure and syntax and, and all these different things. So. Um, I ended up uh, getting a bachelor's and a master's in applied linguistics, studying uh, language structure when it's when it's disordered, right? So uh, looking at schizophrenia specifically and um, some other situations where language starts to break down. And then um, decided I didn't have enough student loan debt. And so I uh, went back and became a speech language pathologist. So it, it's funny when I'm on airplanes now and people ask me what I do, the two job titles are basically speech language pathologist and, um, you know, product manager or uh, brain computer interface uh, product manager. And I, I don't want to explain either of those two things, so I just end up wanting to make something up like, ah, yeah, I'm a real estate agent, I don't know, go to sleep. So in any event, I, I worked clinically uh, as, as a speech-language pathologist with a specialty in low-incidence populations, so we would call these orphan disorders or rare disorders, um, folks that really um, require the use of assistive technology, and specifically in our case, augmentative and alternative communication, which most people tend to think of Stephen Hawking as kind of the cardinal example of somebody who used, uh, you know, assistive technology to speak. So I've been in the industry um, now designing and building those systems for uh, about the last nine years, and I work now uh, as uh, sort of heading up clinical and and marketing for a company called Cognition, which is a brain-computer interface startup out of the uh, Santa Barbara area, uh, although we also have offices in Toronto. So... There's a lot, a lot, a lot of sort of deep learning and analysis that goes into this from, a, you know, not, not bioinformatics in sort of the genetic standpoint, but certainly harnessing, I guess, the signal out of the noise from a lot of, uh, you know, um, biological data. And so that's, that's what drew me to this podcast, and I'm excited to be here and talk more about it. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, we're really happy to have you here. So, and just for our listeners, that's uh, cognition spelled with an X. So we'll, we'll have a transcript on the website where, where you can link out to the website. Yeah, tell us about your, your product. Yeah, so this has been um, sort of a stealth thing for the past couple of years. It, what it is, is it's, it's a coupled uh, brain-computer interface with an augmented reality display. So, or, or like we call it, um, mixed reality is sort of becoming the new term. It's, it's not as complicated as it sounds from a use perspective. So let me put that out um, ahead of time. 
just to frame the conversation a little bit, there are a ton of people in the world and, you know, specifically in the United States that can benefit from augmentative communication, but it's largely an invisible population, right? I sort of call this the silent, silent minority. According to the best of my math, only something like 7% of the people who could benefit from augmentative communication are even aware that it exists, right? So there's a lot of people with, say, cerebral palsy or that have had a, a bulbar stroke or, you know, have a locked-in condition or maybe have been paralyzed in an accident. These are all people that we don't really sort of see out in our, our daily lives, right? A lot of them are, are in care facilities or, or in their homes and very often without the ability to, to speak. The industry of augmentative communication has largely been focused on tablet-based sort of touch solutions in the last couple of years. So certainly for children with autism, that sort of thing, where there isn't any sort of motor disability. So they're still able to, to touch and interact with like an iPad. Or then um, iGaze. So, and the, the Cardinal company in, in that, I was the director of product for, for some time for Toby, which is well known in the sort of iGaze world, which is really also sort of a, a bioinformatics sort of platform just in a more structural re reflectometry, you know, measuring um, gaze using IR light. But that still doesn't meet the needs of this other population of folks that maybe either have too much movement to be adequately tracked by eye gaze. So the example would be like spastic CP if you have a lot of chorea, which is sort of like involuntary movement, you're all over the place. Or then the opposite, you know, if you late stage ALS or folks that are totally locked in after a stroke, things like that, that currently really don't have a means to communicate. So what our product does is it presents a language um, and sort of home control interface uh, in the augmented reality environment and then measures uh, using electrodes on the occipital lobe on the, the rear of the head. It measures evoked potentials, it, specifically visually evoked potentials or SSVEPs to define it which um, in evoked potential, uh, really it's like, think of being pinched, right? If somebody like pinched you in your arm, that would cause like a spike in, you know, the specific sort of part of your brain that's measuring pain or tactile sort of experience um, in that part of your body. What we're doing is the same thing from a visual standpoint. So the different interface elements in the, in the AR environment basically fluctuate or, or have different frequencies to them, say five Hertz, eight Hertz, 12 Hertz. And depending on what somebody's fixated on, we can measure then the, the evoked potential that spikes in their occipital lobe um, to associate that then with intent and make a selection. So it's been really cool. There's a lot of uh, signal to noise sort of questions around it, which I can go into, but, uh, but that's sort of the, the rough path. It's really interesting. So are the people essentially being shown different, say, letters, for example, uh, at different frequencies and, and you're, you're effectively measuring attention? Yep, absolutely. And that's I like the way you said attention, like there is a distinction between gaze and fixation in this sense. So like, for example, if somebody's unable to move their eyes, we can still detect what they're attending to within their peripheral vision. So it is very much an attention instead of like explicitly looking at something like in an eye gaze modality. And yes, uh, so it, it has to do with the, you know, the frequency of the elements. There is sort of a threshold at which the, the sort of noise becomes too much, right? So one of the things we're working on is trying to have as many interactive elements as possible within that, with the ultimate goal of getting to like a full QWERTY keyboard, you know, where somebody can, can type out. Uh, we're, we're working towards that. We're not quite there yet. Right now, um, we have, uh, for example, something called a Linotype keyboard, which is you sort of dive in based on frequency of letters within like a sort of a subset of, uh, of the alphabet and then sort of can back back up. And, you know, we do a lot of things in, uh, in terms of natural language processing and prediction and context awareness to try to predict the right stuff. Um, and then we also have like a pre-built phrase inventory that's, you know, relevant to certain 
contexts, medical needs, social needs, stuff like that uh, as kind of a starting point. But then really we anticipate everyone's going to customize that and add their own phrases and stuff, right? You can't predict what everybody wants to say. I think one of the reasons why I love this field is that um, it sort of combines a lot of different disciplines, right? I mean, we have obviously this sort of clinical healthcare component, but then we also have a really deep sort of language and linguistic research component. And then we have the, the BCI and, and, you know, all these other sort of like interesting engineering questions. So there's never a dull moment. So out of all these challenges, what do you think is the most difficult? It's tough. Um, it's tough to answer. I think that I'm going to go with two of them. Well, three of them. <laughs> Can I give you three? I'll give you three equal challenges. So one of them is um, is the design of the language system, right? So one of the issues with these historically has been that what we're what we do is we provide people with sort of an inventory of what we want them to say, rather than giving them the flexibility to say what they really want to say. Which you know, in in Chomsky's terms, would be like the infinite generability of language. You know, the fact that you can say anything in English, you can make a sentence of infinite length with all these sort of modifiers and different things. That's hard to capture when you're working with a UX where you maybe are constrained to something like eight interactive elements, right? So we don't want to make people have to dive 30 pages deep or paginate for an hour in order to find these pre-programmed things. You know, what we want to do is increase their rate of production as much as possible using like intelligence based on their context or prediction and, and this other stuff. And so... It's, it's been a challenge because language prediction and language generally is not very well understood, even among neurotypical populations. But then you think about like the specific needs that someone with ALS or CP or Rett syndrome might have. And um, it's been a really interesting journey, like working with the community and having actual users of augmentative communication, you know, sort of vet these out for us and give us feedback. So we have about 100 um, users that work with us on the development of the language model. And that's... One of our sort of core principles is nothing for us without us, right? So keeping all those folks involved. The second one I would say is the sort of signal to noise question. And, and the analogy I guess I would have is the hearing aid industry, which is which is really big, by the way. There's like billion dollar companies that are making hearing aids. And from a consumer standpoint, they're under a lot of pressure to increase battery life and decrease size of the devices. But they also are under a lot of pressure to improve their like far field sound detection and differentiation between people like sitting close to you. Like I remember my grandfather had hearing aids like 20 years ago and it just amplified everything, right? So if you're in a crowded room, you just basically can't hear anything because you hear everything all at once. And so there's just a ton of algorithm work that has gone into trying to be like, okay, like who, who are we actually listening to here? Let's tune out all the rest while also dealing with battery constraint and firmware and everything else. And that's really similar, right? Because we get all this electric data from the brain and we're really sort of looking for this one little needle in that haystack, right? And everything else can go away. And so, you know, meanwhile, we need to make something that's wearable and portable and durable and, you know, has adequate battery life to work all day. That's, I think, been the balance and the trade-off why we've been working all year or for several years. If this were, were an invasive solution, like Elon Musk, for example, with Neuralink, a lot of those questions become a lot easier. Um, but we really didn't want uh, something invasive. We wanted something that you could just sort of put on and take off. Um, and then the third piece of challenge, which is yet to be sort of fully vetted out, is just explaining it. Um, when you think of these folks that maybe have ALS, this might be, you know, your 70-year-old grandfather who isn't particularly computer proficient, right? And suddenly we're asking him to be a cyborg uh, with this uh, brain-computer interface. So. We, you know, if you're a 20 year old with CP or a 40 year old with ALS, I think those folks are a lot sort of more caught up with uh, modern technology and are, are willing to sort of expect and experiment with the environment. 
one of my jobs over the next few months is to be preparing all these materials and, and webinars and everything else to try to show everyone why this is valuable for them at any age. That's really interesting. So how far do you think non-invasive methods can be pushed? So there is sort of a theoretical threshold that's been established in research of, like if we're looking specifically at the keyboard access use case, there was a, uh, an article published recently arguing basically that 30 works per minute is about what we're going to get in terms of being able to sort out intentionality from specifically the occipital use case. 30 words per minute's not bad. <laughs> yeah, it's not, right? And that's, that's about the rate that most people uh, text. It's a little bit slower than typical conversational rapport, which is really what we sort of want to get to. And so we, we scaffold that a bit with things like the pre-built phrases. Um, but that's our goal, is to get to that point. I think that it's probably premature to say that, that we have a hard and fast threshold, right? Like that's just, you know, famous last words, right? Because somebody's going to come up with a better electrode or somebody's going to come up with a better algorithm. And if we didn't have the constraints on battery and firmware, like if we could hook somebody up to a mainframe with these, we could easily exceed that, right? But we're trying to build something that's compact and portable. I'm confident that things will evolve and I'm confident they'll evolve in such a way that, you know, I think it's at some point the distinction between invasive and non-invasive for this sort of measurement is probably going to be moot. We're probably still 10 years away from that. And how does the learning curve look for people as they start to use this? You know, where it's their first day versus they're a month in versus they're a year in. How much difference do you see in speed? Yeah, right. So that's a big subject, obviously, of the clinical trials and, and user testing and human factors that we've been doing now for um, quite some time and will continue to do. We still have three more iterations of that testing before the first version of the product goes to launch, which will be in early of, uh, early summer. This is a kind of a cop-out answer, but I would, I'd have to say it depends. I think that folks that are used to, for example, even just a QWERTY keyboard interface, right? Those folks, uh, you know, that maybe have just had a cell phone and been texting or a computer literate to begin with, they're going to move pretty quickly through being able to do this. Like I can almost hit that 30 words per minute threshold myself right now. Um, and we found that to be consistently true for folks with ALS that are familiar with computers, folks with CP, myasthenia gravis, uh, supranuclear palsies. I mean, all these different things. Basically, if you are a literate adult who then goes through a transition into needing to use this, the pickup period is pretty quick. There are two exceptions to that. One of them is the sort of older adult who maybe doesn't have a lot of experience with, you know, sort of typing in, in an electronic environment, right? Um, and so it takes, there's a little bit extra there in terms of just, I guess what we would call uh, operational competence, knowing how the thing might work or how you want it to work and that it needs to be charged and all these basics. And then at the other end would be, um, you know, this, this population like Rett syndrome is a really good example. So Rett syndrome is, is a rare disease that only affects women. It tends to cause paralysis kind of from the waist up. And it, it, it has an, an, an onset of around between three to five years old, typically, is when these diagnoses occur. And so there's a lot of girls out there with Rett syndrome that I've worked with personally that maybe haven't had a communication system their entire life, you know, or have been doing something like, you know, somebody holds up a piece of plexiglass with words written on it and they try to guess what the person's looking at, you know, that sort of thing. And um, when we catch them at 16 or 18 years old, there can be a little bit of a learning curve there too, because they haven't even necessarily been exposed to written language in a sort of authorship sort of capacity. So. You know, that's one of the things we think about, too, is how to scaffold people up to literacy. You know, maybe you never just were exposed because of their disability. It's interesting. Long term, do you see any non-medical applications 
for oh, this yeah. kind of technology. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I think that's where most of the market is focused, right? Especially when it comes to the augmented reality use case. I mean, a lot of people are looking at industrial applications, but also entertainment stuff. I know um, one of the companies we work with just licensed their uh, lens technology also to the Super Mario land sort of themed thing in, in Disney World. And so there's all kinds of cool stuff going on with it. There, yeah, so so within medicine, there's there's stuff that I haven't even addressed, right? So there's the concept of therapeutics for Alzheimer's using this. There's the concept of diagnostics. You know, all of that are sort of, those are outside of our use case, but are really, really interesting. Uh, and then beyond that, like one of the things we've done, and, and Amazon has been really, really gracious with us. We use a lot of their sort of backend for our uh, computing and for privacy reasons and things like that. But um, they've also enabled us to embed Alexa, you know, as a, as a virtual assistant, which is cool because you don't actually need to own an Alexa. Like it actually is an Alexa hub itself. And there have been times when, like, for example, my voice assistant is in our kitchen and my wife was cooking a few weeks ago and it wouldn't, it couldn't hear me. Like it was too much other noise. And I was like, man, I wish I just had the, the wearable and I could just tell it with my brain, like turn off the lights. So, I mean, I, I absolutely think that stuff is coming. Where do you think the first applications will be? You know, it's interesting to look at who's most interested versus what sort of gets actualized first. You know, we, for example, have a ton of interest and a lot of inquiries from gaming companies, right, who are interested not just as a control modality, but also, and this is something that I worked with at Toby a fair amount, training and, and measurement for like professional video game players of like, you know, what were you looking at when you did this play or what were you thinking about those sorts of things. However, that's really not where we see the first investment happening. I think the first investment is much more um, industrial and, you know, and medical in another sense, right? So remote surgical tools, uh, you know, things like that. But if you think of it as, you know, almost as just a separate access modality, like there might be somebody who's, who is um, interacting with, uh, say, a remote surgical tool and they have a mouse and they've got a right click and a left click and you got a keyboard in front of them, but now they also have this totally other modality where they can interact in sort of a third way, even just to zoom in on a, a piece of what they're, they're looking at or whatever using the, the brain computer interface component. I, you know, I, I see that stuff coming and I also see it for a neurotypical audience, not even being that expensive. Just the pure brain computer interface stuff is probably gonna become pretty popular. I mean, you look at stuff like uh, Muse now, um, you know, these companies that are offering like meditation awareness, that's all fundamentally the same sort of technology just applied at a different different scale. So um, it's going to be really cool to watch. I think that we're going to see a real revolution in terms of what these things can offer us over the next five to 10 years. Going back to the medical applications, you talked about therapeutics. How, how could something like this have a, a therapeutic use? Can you discuss that? Yeah, sure. So there's been, there's some evidence, for example, that in Alzheimer's specifically, as well as in certain uh, visual impairments, that specific frequencies of the steady state visual elements might actually, in one case, break up plaques. Um, in another case, serve as sort of a training and attention mechanism um, for people that maybe have cognitive impairments or attention impairments in terms of like uh, attending to their entire field of view. We have a lot of folks that are interested in using our hardware for that. And, and that's one thing I'll say is that, you know, I'm a speech language pathologist. My role has been, you know, to build this for our initial use case, which is augmentative communication. But we also do see this as a platform for other folks, you know, if people want to develop on top of it. The, the reason why, uh, frankly, we're not jumping into diagnostics ourselves right off the bat is just as a result of the FDA sort of requirements that would be involved with that. You know, we are a startup. We're honing in on, on the, something that we know we can do really, really well. Start with the tractable use case for sure. 
Yeah, exactly. And can you maybe discuss diagnostics a bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that have been shown to be diagnostic from specifically an EEG use case. So, I mean, one of them that that I'll just throw out there as a metric that we measure is fatigue. You know, if we have somebody who's using the device for a long period of time, we are able to tell that's kind of wearing them down. And one thing that we could do, for example, is to simplify the user interface or bring the interactive elements closer together so there's not as much range of motion or attention involved. We're looking at all those things. It's There's ethics that come into play there, too. It's like, I don't want to be like, you're tired. Now you can't use language. Shush, you know, <laughs> we need to sort of balance what we're doing. You know, fatigue is sort of like an in-the-moment um, thing that's that's relatively easy. More complex things would be actually um, tracking the rate of neurodegenerative diseases and, and prognosis in that regard, of which there is compelling evidence for ALS, for Parkinson's, for Alzheimer's, that that all could be possible. But it's all it's it's still pretty exploratory, right? There isn't like a, a clear blueprint of X plus Y equals Z at this point. But we're certainly willing to throw this tool into the mix in terms of something else that people can experiment with. So if you were to speculate way out 50 years, what do you think will be the long-term implications of this kind of technology? You're, you're writing a sci-fi story involving a brain-computer interface, non-invasive brain-computer interface technology with AR. I, you know, it's funny you asked that question. So I just, I've been listening to uh, Ready Player Two, the audiobook. you know, I don't know if Ernest Klein, he wrote Ready Player One and they made a movie out of it, Steven Spielberg, but so listening to Ready Player Two. And the, literally the premise of the book is about the first non-invasive BCI AR. And I, I, to the point where I was walking to work and I'm looking around like, is somebody listening to me? I thought I signed an NDA about all this. Like, how are they? So other people are thinking about it absolutely in the science fiction context. And, you know, his take is a little bit dystopian. And it's, um, you know, that people sort of come to enjoy this BCI mixed reality environment more than life itself. Right. So they sort of dive into it wholesale. For better or for worse, I can assure you we're not there yet. <laughs> um, you know, there's all kinds of other evoked potentials that they could be explored, you know, taste, sound, haptics. In the novel, all of that is sort of, you know, complete, and we're really still looking at visuals. But I, I would say that there's probably two futures I see. One of them in, in terms of the assistive technology use cases, I really feel like we're moving towards a future where accessibility is going to become synonymous with personalization which is very much something that I, I want, right? You know, uh, there's a quote that I love that's, uh, for some people, technology makes things easier, but for others, technology makes things possible. I really want to just sort of raise the bar in assistive tech and, um, and establish this as the new standard moving forward, is that we should be looking at all of these things, not just BCI, but also just the context of life and use and in whatever form we can get it. Um, and then for society generally, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see. I, I, I see all these sort of hypotheticals come up. Obviously, there there is uh, immense military application, right, which is a whole other conversation in and of itself. But there's also application as we look towards autonomous vehicles. If you would ask me five years ago, I never would have guessed that this meditation use case would be as popular as it is. But people really like the sort of self-monitoring you know, monitoring of their emotional state and getting that feedback. And so... It would not surprise me at all if um, a BCI wearable in, in some form became a pretty common piece of technology for people to have in, in the 10-year window. Interesting. And what do you think are the military use cases? Yeah, right. That's, so working coming from the eye gaze tracking field, there was a lot of military interest in that realm as well. So I can speak to it pretty comprehensively from that perspective. We have not here worked with military directly, although we have had conversations with um, various space agencies. But I think it sort of comes back to the sort of the idea of having that other access modality, right? So if your hands are tied up flying that jet with 600 other things you've got to do, 
and you know the jet is able to infer what you are attending to, whether that's a threat or or simply something within you know the cockpit interface. I mean that adds another layer of really interesting data, not only in terms of what it can do in the moment for predicting what needs to be done by the by the jet, but also in you know sort of post flight analysis. If something went really right or something went really wrong, you know how can we sort of harness the intentionality of the pilot to either repeat or prevent that from happening again. And I think a lot of that translates into the, the space use case as well. So um, I'll be really interested to see what people come up with, frankly. Seems a bit like the possibilities are limitless. Yeah, right? Well, it's this whole other sort of measurement that we, we sort of haven't had access to, at least not at a consumer scale before. One of the sayings in linguistics uh, that I was sort of, you know, raised with in, in all my college uh, training was that the only measurement of cognition is language and behavior, right? We, we sort of can't look into someone's head. We can only see what they say and, and how they, you know, what they do in order to measure what's happening up there. And that's kind of changing, right? I mean, I wouldn't say that we're reading words directly, but we can definitely get a really clear sense of at least what people are looking at and paying attention to um, at any given moment. And I think that's, you know, pretty telling often in terms of their behavior. I would love to, to hear from, from anybody listening. I mean, this is, uh, again, it's, it's so cool to have podcasts like this that focus in on something really specific like bioinformatics, because I'm sure there's a lot that I have even missed in terms of talking about this, and I'd love to hear ideas. So again, it's cognition.com, C-O-G-N-I-X-I-O-N. And there's a whole long story I won't go into in terms of why that's the spelling, but it's, it's, it means things. You know, my name's Lucas Stuber. I'd love to hear from you, Lucas, at cognition.com. Uh, you know, any sort of thoughts or interests people might have. You know, I guess my, my sort of final bit is that I think we're the first that has blended the, the BCI and the AR modality, um, or at least the first to market. It wouldn't surprise me at all if other people are working on it, but we won't be the last. I think that the disability use case is one that's really compelling for me, and it's one that's going to really benefit a lot of people around the world. Um, but it's also sort of a harbinger of what's to come, right? I, I think that everyone is going to be looking at and talking about devices like this a lot more uh, in the next 20 years. It's, it's going to be great to watch. Thanks so much for joining us, Lucas. Thanks for your time. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.